All right, this morning we will continue in First Peter. And we are actually drawing toward the end. <laughs> I guess that's a safe statement to say, right? From the first day we've been drawing toward the end. But we're in chapter 4 now. And at the proper time, Jill, I'm going to have you to read our passage, which will be verses 7 through 11. All right, remember, Peter's writing all these things to a church that is under persecution. And I believe he was very much concerned about them apostatizing and going back into the uh, Judaism. Uh, the same thing the author of Hebrews was concerned about. So he's been telling them, you need to remember who you are. You are the blood-bought People of God, you are the true church. You are the true Israel. And wicked people are persecuting you, but you can overcome this. And he gives them very specific instructions on things that they can do to overcome. So that pretty much brings us up to date on this. Remember who you are, what you are supposed to be doing. And this morning we come to another passage that has multiple interpretations. And um, we will be covering that. So let's have 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11 read to us. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so Peter, who accuses Paul of writing things that are hard to understand, throws us another little passage here this morning, right? Okay, the end of all things is at hand. Well, we're still here, right? We're still here. I guess he didn't know what he was talking about. I guess we've got some problems. The apostle made a mistake, right? We just can't trust the scriptures. Is that right? No. No? Okay. Right. Okay. Well, let's dive into this and see what Peter means by this. Now, the all things receives emphasis in the Greek. All things, the end, has drawn near. That's what that says. All things. Anybody want to uh, explain what all things is? The current order of uh, the administration of the Old Covenant. Okay, we have an administration of the Old Covenant. 
the beginning of the new covenant, I think is what you were saying. Yeah, there's a couple other things that could be, which it could he could be talking directly to the Jewish converts about Jerusalem because of the time period this was written and and uh, evidently he died 62s early 60s and or late 60s before Jerusalem. So in a lot of other places when he said you know this is near that's near. Um, then could be talking about that. Case could be made for that. The the end of the Jews, the end of the right. persecution. Right, the end yeah. of, and really that's what he said, it's, it's the end of the Old yeah. Covenant. Right. Um, it also, since he he talks to, like, not just the Jews, but he's, he, in the beginning, I think he addresses the Jews, but he talks to the Gentile converts several and quite a few times. And this could be that life is short uh, end of all things for you here it's, it can happen in a flash and so um, so he says therefore be of sound judgment etc. and beyond that so I think there's a bunch of different possibilities here. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that creation has ended. Uh, right. <clears throat> so, in context, they're being persecuted. Peter's giving them ways of enduring through this persecution. And he says, look, it's coming to an end. So, it could be coming to an end in several ways. Number one, you're going to pass on and be with the Lord. Uh, these Jews that are persecuting you in AD 70... They will be no more. Um, the order that God has, the the um, old covenant order is about to go. It is going to be gone. In AD 70, it is all going to be gone. You will be vindicated and it's going to be the end of your persecution as you know of it now. Now later the Romans did persecute them but the particular persecution he has in mind here is the Jewish persecution. Okay. All right, let's look at your notes. Peter indicates the end of all things is at hand. Seeing the context, he is most likely referring to the destruction of the persecuting Jews in A.D. 70. And like I said, we've heard a few other little things that are connected with that. So, not only would this bring an end to the present persecution they are undergoing, but also to the old covenant order. <clears throat> so it's bad. It's tough. I've told you how to live, and you're not going to have to do that a whole lot longer. Now, the um, keeping that on in case Braden needs anything. Um, the what we have to realize here too is that the in the destruction of Jerusalem, the obedient Christians left because Jesus says, "When you see the abomination of de desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, 
then you head to the mountains. The other thing, she just says, don't be too concerned about that. But when you see the desolation, when you see the, uh, uh, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, it's time to get out. And so the obedient Christians would have gone out. Those that didn't believe Jesus would have stayed in Jerusalem, and of course they were all killed. Okay, so God bring, brings judgment upon their persecutors. So the end of all things is at hand. Okay, then he says, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. All right, in your notes, knowing that all things are ordered by God, and this trial is temporary, they should be self-controlled. They should be sober-minded. And it says, for the sake of your prayers. Now, the literal reading is that, is be sober-minded in your prayers. Be sober-minded in your prayers. And then it says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Okay, now, how important is that? To love one another, this is a persecuted church, how important would it be to love one another to cover a multitude of sins? Would that be just kind of important? Or would it be just about mandatory? Um, what would you think? Well, in the face of persecution, you'd want to maintain uh, unity and a common commitment of bearing up under it. And if people are being distracted by each other's behavior and not maintaining that um, love spirit that's supposed to characterize members of the church, it would be all the more difficult to endure the tent the uh, persecution. a church that is persecuted and they are fighting among one another wouldn't have much of a chance. <laughs> um, so this, this it seems to me like this is mandatory. That if they're going to survive, they're going to have to love one another. And their love should cover a multitude of sins. Um, I meant to look this up, but there is a proverb that says that it is to one's glory to overlook a transgression. So the idea here is don't let little piddly things cause divisions. If someone does something to you and they shouldn't have done it, it seems to me like what Peter would be saying is let your love cover that sin. That's okay. He sinned against me. He shouldn't have called me that name. He shouldn't have accused me of so-and-so, but hey, I can take it. I can take it. I haven't. He hasn't sinned against me nearly as much as I've sinned against the Lord. So, you know, if it does get so bad, you're supposed to go to him according to Matthew 18. And if it continues, 
you can take it to the church, take it to the elders. But if you can do it, let your love cover a multitude of sins. Get along with each other. Now this doesn't apply to doctrine. This doesn't apply to doctrine. This applies to Christian behavior. Getting along. Unity. Right? Well, in persecution, is it not also a witness to unbelievers? Right. That we love each other. Right. Paul says in another place in Philippians that that's a sign to them of their destruction. If y'all continue to live well while being persecuted, that's a sign to them of their destruction. You know, the, the, the world likes nothing better than to see Christians at each other's throats. And we're pretty good at being at each other's throats a lot of times. And, but it shouldn't be that way. <laughs> yeah. So... This is in no way sacrificing doctrine, compromising in doctrine, <clears throat> but not being thin-skinned. Just don't be thin-skinned. True love covers a multitude of sins. <clears throat> All right, so that takes care of loving one another. And the next one is showing hospitality. Um, now we all know how when somebody overstays their welcome and all that, that that could be tough. But we're still supposed to take it and not grumble. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And a lot of times um, it, it was more important then than it is now. Because we're all well to do and all that, but a lot of times back in then the church would have to, to stick together as we read in Acts chapter 2 that they would be sure and take care of one another even if they had to sell their property. And they would be together. So the idea of unity and that includes showing hospitality. And then using their gifts not selfishly but for the church. Okay. Um, so he, Peter instructs them in verse 10 as each has received a gift use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace or manifold grace now whatever gift God gives you you're not, that's not for you that's for the church if you have a gift of music, that's for the church. If you have a gift of teaching, that's for the church. If you have a gift of hospitality, that's for the church. It's not for you. Um, and, and I'm just going to hint at this now, but we're going to hit it harder later. This is important for belonging to a church. As each has received a gift, use it for one another. And then verse 11, whoever speaks... As one speaking, the oracles of God, whoever serves, serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified. So there's only one way of using your gifts, and that's being a church. Okay? So it's important to belong to God's people. Now we read here that whoever speaks as... Okay, first of all, is 
whoever serves. Uh, let him <clears throat> use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So, the if you have the gift of serving, that's very important. And when we come to church, if you have that gift, you should use it to serve others. And then whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Now, this phrase, the oracles of God, literally is words of God. Logoi, the plural of logos is what is used there. He speaks the word of God, words of God. Whoever speaks, speaks the words of God. Now, I'm pretty sure he's talking about teachers here. What implications does that have for us when as one speaks, he speaks the words of God? What implications does that have for you when you come to church? What's your attitude supposed to be? Oh, no, another boring sermon. Open the hearing. Okay, that's it. That's got it. Let's go home. (laughs) What was that like? Open to hearing the word spoken. I would, it's pretty important, right? If a teacher or a preacher is up teaching the scriptures faithfully, it has the authority of God, God himself behind it. If he is speaking faithfully the scriptures, it is just as if God is there talking to you. That's how important it is when you're under teaching, teaching of an elder or a preacher, that as long as he is faithful, that's the authority that carries. So when we come to church, we need to be ready to hear God's words. We're even supposed to tremble. Okay, as God's people, we need to realize this. That's why in the Reformed churches, the Word of God is simple. Just as it should be. Okay, now, the idea here, and this is back in your notes, the idea is to be living the way God wants them to. They should strive to lead a commandment-oriented life. In other words, follow God's revealed will instead of their emotions. Therefore, be sober-minded, self-controlled, loving, showing hospitality, things of this sort, using your gifts right, leading a commandment-oriented life instead of living by their emotions. The following happens when they do live God's way. They would pray effectively. The NIV interprets this as being sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. It's literally into your prayers. But for the sake of your prayers is probably implied there. So we would pray for effectively. The church prospers. If everyone meets together on the Lord's Day as we are commanded to do, and everyone uses their gifts 
for the sake of the church, then the church prospers. Everyone has a gift. And if you don't think you have one, talk to an elder or a mature Christian and find out what it is. <clears throat> okay? So the church will prosper. And then in verse 11, it says at the end, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So the idea is when the church beats together like this and follows what Jesus Christ or what Peter is telling them to do here, that God is glorified. His church prospers and he is glorified. Now the last thing in your notes, notice the necessity of Christians meeting together in this passage. Meeting together. You can't do these things if you don't meet with God's people. Is there such thing as a lone wolf Christian? I can worship at home. I don't have to be with all those hypocrites. I can do it myself. Is there a such thing? There is a such thing, but it's not anywhere found in the scriptures. There's really no such thing because the lone wolves really aren't Christians. I have a twofold question. Okay. To see where, what your thoughts are on this. Uh, I have a friend of mine who grew up uh, in North Dakota. Uh, his family's thousand acre uh, wheat farm bordered, bordered Canada. Like the closest church to him was four hours away. So his, his dad basically did worship every Sunday and he used R.C. Sproul's Ligonier Ministry stuff. What would you say to somebody who is in a position where they are just so distant from everything that it's practically infeasible for them to attend worship? Yeah. Even semi-regularly. It is, but I think they should seriously consider moving. Because that's the most important thing in your life is being with the church, worshiping on Sunday mornings, with God's people. You know, they are providentially hindered, yes, but I think you would be well within God's will to move close to a place of worship. That's my opinion. I know some people would disagree. But if that's the most important thing, then they should do it. And that has practical implications. Um, we don't have anybody in here that's young, fairly young, <laughs> But, uh, but in considering vocation, your vocation and what you want to do, a person should not consider taking a employment anywhere where he's not going to be able to attend a faithful church. I never thought that way when I was growing up. Did you have another question? No, you answered the way you answered the first yeah. part. Most people aren't in that situation. We have probably across the street over here a hundred families that just don't want to bother. They think they can worship on, on their own. First of all, they never do. People that say they can worship God at home, they never do. Second of all, they are despising God's people. They're despising God's word by not attending church. 
These are blood-bought people. These are the people that Jesus Christ has purchased with his blood. And they are in a very bad situation if they reject what Christ has done. They're not good enough for me, Jesus. They're a bunch of hypocrites. Rejecting God's people is a very wicked thing to do. And that's exactly what they're doing when they refuse to come to church. And then third of all, who do, you, who do they think they are? Just who do they think they are? Be, stay at home and worship when they, God's people, are meeting together. Just who do they think they are? Mike? Yeah, just another, another associated issue would be um, take an employment where it's demanded that you work on the, sun, on the Lord's Day. Yeah. Go find something else to do. Yep. There's a lot of people that would disagree with that. Too. Yeah. I know that when Allison was looking for employment, she must have had to turn down five jobs because they required her to work on Sunday. Mm-hmm. That wasn't because I told her not to. She did that on her own. I mean, I, I, I taught her we're supposed to keep the Lord's Day holy, but she did that on her own. She just was convicted that she couldn't work on Sunday. Okay. That's all I have for today. Anybody have anything else to have? Yeah. Just uh, to go back to the beginning <clears throat> concerning uh, the last days, um, in Second Peter 3, he returns to that theme, and he uses language very similar to the Lord's language in Matthew 24. And uh, I believe it was the uh, Puritan writer John Owen who wrote an extensive comment about Second Peter and what he's saying there. And he... I read this years ago, I don't remember the details, but I saw it referenced that John Owen's argument was that that, the the dissolving of the elements and fervent heat and the stars falling in 2 Peter 3, he likens that to the destruction of the temple. But this was the end of the world if you were uh, a Jew living at the time. That was an unimaginable calamity that that would happen. Yeah. (laughs) I agree with that. If John Owen talks... Christian, you need to listen. (laughs) I don't think you're going to find a better theologian since the apostles than John Owen. And that includes our pastor. All right, anybody have anything else? Okay, Charles, close us in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time of study and your word.